0: Vacation starts with VA. One thing you'll love about your trip to Virginia is that you'll never have to settle for one thing. All that you love is all in one trip. Start yours at virginia.org.
1: This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers,
0: the Cry podcast.
1: Okay, so I'm here with author April Taylor. Welcome to the show. How are you?
0: Thank you very much. I'm very well. This is the first Zoom that I've ever really done like this, so I'm quite excited and looking forward to it.
1: (laughs) We'll we'll get the nerves wrinkled out of the system. Don't worry about that. We'll be absolutely fine. The reason we're here, we're going to talk about your career and your love of history because I am also I don't want to call myself a history buff, because if you ask me a question about history, I probably don't know the answer, but I like learning about it, so I'm hoping I can learn something from you. But we're here, really, on the back of your new book, which is non-fiction, and it's called Crime and Punishment in Tudor, England, From Alchemists to Zealots. My first question is, do you say Tudor or Tudor? I say Tudor. Tudor. As in T-E-W, Tudor. Tudor
0: Not CHEw
1: not Tudor Tudor. No, t- Tudor Tudor.
0: Tudor. <laughs> Tudor yes Tudor.
1: <laughs> Talk to me about the Tudor period. When was this in history?
0: what 15th century roughly? It started in the 15th century in 1485 when the then Duke of Richmond, Henry Duke of Richmond uh, came landed near Pembroke in Wales and marched across England to meet the then-King Richard III at Bosworth Field on, I think it was the 22nd of August. By various machinations, um, he defeated him. The Stanley family, one member of the Stanley family, decided to sit at the top of the hill and decided he was going to win and then come down on their side with his forces. Otherwise, I think Richard may well have won. But uh, Henry won the day. Richard's crown, which he had worn into battle, was found on a bush, and Stanley crowned the new king, Henry VII. Was it Richard III that was found
1: in the car park a couple of years ago? Yes, yes, the king in
0: the car park. That was him, yeah. (laughs) The same lady, Philippa Langley, thinks that she may have found the tomb of Henry I, who was 1100 to 1135 sort of half in and half out of winchester cathedral but also allegedly part of if she is correct part of her discovery is that he half of him is in a car park as well which i find quite amusing
1: <laughs> I how many kings are lost under car parks where does this love for history come from because doing a bit of research on your background it seems like you caught the bug at a young age where does that stem from originally any influences there
0: It stemmed originally from my mother, who was always quite interested in history, but also very interested in crime. I first discovered the early historical novelists like Jean Plady and Margaret Campbell Barnes when I was about 12 or 13. And Margaret Campbell Barnes' book Brief Gordy Hour, which was about Anne Boleyn, was the one that really caught my imagination. And from then on, really, it was history that caught my interest but also with a heavy accent on crime. And really, I say this to a lot of people, had my teachers sat and thought about it, I think I would have been better if I had done a history degree and then done a librarianship postgraduate degree because I could have then been a historian, but it didn't quite work out like that. So there we go.
1: You know, when you're learning, like in school, I wasn't really a fan of it. As my, A lot of kids aren't really a fan of school, are they? Because you're going through so many changes. It's. Almost, I've said to people, it's kind of the worst time to learn things because you don't really know what you're interested in. You're more concerned with making friends, etc. cetera. Looking back on it, I wish I would have paid more attention. Was there anything in particular at school that you thought you wanted to be? You mentioned that, you know, you, ideally you would have gone down the history degree route in sort of uh, further education, but. What were your aspirations as a kid?
0: Initially, I wanted to be a a beautician because I was very interested in makeup and stuff like that when I got into my 12 or 13. And my mother, who was a very sensible lady, said, do you really think that you have the correct character to stand on your feet all day being nice to old battle axes who aren't being nice to you? And when I thought about it, I said, no. And she said, you love books. You are always reading Become a librarian, so that's what I did. So this librarianship, what is
1: that? Because I, in my head, a librarian is just someone that works at a library. No,
0: <laughs> the joke is that in the second year, you learn how to stamp books with your left hand. Um, <laughs> it's you, you have to it, you learn about cataloging and classification systems, and in public libraries, it's mostly the, the one called the Dewey Decimal System for nonfiction. And you learn how to find information. And that was what really set me off because the first rule of librarianship is you don't have to know anything. You just have to know where to find it or who to ask. And once I found that out, I just flew and I loved it. I then became, because of the history thing, very interested in local history. And the third year of my degree was out in post, and mine was in Worcester, which has a huge history going back a long way, especially to to the Civil War. And I ended up giving talks to local schools. And when the pupils from foreign countries came over who we were twinned with, I used to give talks to them. I remember giving a talk to one group of Italian children who, because Edward Elgar was was local to Worcester. I played them the first few bars of Land of Hope and Glory, which is probably his best known piece. And um, one of them put up his hand and said, "I know that we hate Nottingham Forest." <laughs> but really, that's that's where it all it all, all really took off. And then I I've worked in public libraries. I worked on a mobile library going around rural Herefordshire in the very very bad winter of nineteen seventy nine. And I ended up as an R&D pharmaceutical information manager for a global pharmaceutical company, which is where I met my husband. I remember them
1: them uh, remote libraries or mobile libraries. They used to t- come to school and stuff and used to go in, get a little book. Do they exist anymore? I don't remember the last time I saw one.
0: They are one of the first things that gets cut when there have to be cuts in local authorities. But when I took the one over, the routes over that I took over, the issues weren't very high. They said to me, we need you to double your issues. So I worked out how to do that. So I took my first golden retriever on the van with me. So Oscar used to come all around Herefordshire and bits of Worcestershire with me. And and people used to say, oh, we've just come to see the doggy. Isn't he lovely? I'll take some books while I'm here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) When you say issues, what do you mean?
0: Uh, How many books people take out. So if you take out four books, that's four issues. Okay. it's it's quite it's, it's if you if you like that sort of thing, it's it's quite a nice, it's quite a nice job. You you drive from area to area in specified places for a specified time. And then people come in and give you the books back that they've read and they take out new books and then you drive to the next one. And I rearranged the route completely so that I could always have lunch where there was a nice view as I ate my sandwiches. I enjoyed it. It was it was um it was a, a very, very good job. But then we moved from Worcestershire up to Yorkshire. Oh nice. My ends. Oh yeah, so yeah, I've been, been a, a Yorkshire import since nineteen eighty two.
1: I was just thinking then when you're planning your routes with the mobile library, probably best not to park up at the same time as the ice cream van.
0: No, no, because you don't no. want
1: that that rivalry. You probably lose that, out. No,
0: that's that's absolutely right. And also, everybody always offers you a cup of tea, but very few offer you the loo. Yes. So, so that's sometimes. So so um, you know, that's sometimes got a bit a, a bit tricky. Yes. Trees, I have known that you can hide behind. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what do you think libraries are perceived as now? Because we have a local library, I'm quite an active member of it. I suppose you can. Good reserve books online now which is handy because they don't often it's it's quite small because it's one of these community centers so you've got a post office in there there's computers people doing work in there so the library itself
0: is sort of it's like it's like a hub for the community a hub yeah that's exactly what it is um and and it's ours is exactly the same but i've always said that libraries are there for recreation i.e you know getting out your four romances if that's what floats your boat Information like, can you give me a recipe for rosehip syrup, and education like, I want to know about Edward the First. Where do I look? So they've always had this threefold responsibility. As far as I'm concerned, I've been out of out of public libraries now for a very long time. Well, basically since I I came up to Yorkshire, because there were no jobs in libraries when I came up. Um, I was also looking after my child and i then went and did um shorthand and typing and went into administration and secretarial work do you think
1: there's an inevitable decline of library usage especially when you can get books so cheap on places like amazon even ebay and stuff what do you think about that
0: i think that the internet is largely to blame for the downturn in libraries because there are three fables that most people believe about the internet the first one is that everything is on the internet well actually no it's not the second one is that everything on the internet is true even more no it's not and the third one is that everything on the internet is free and that's the most no it's not i sub monthly to an oxford journal site called jstor and it's it costs me i think it's about 23 pounds a month but it's worth it because i've got access online to papers that I wouldn't get from anywhere else. But people still need to be able to go into the library because a lot of people still like physical books. There will always be physical books. And there are a lot of things nowadays, a lot of what used to be county archives and libraries are joined together. One of the the, the ones that's, that is the best example of that is, is called The Hive in Worcester. And you go in there, and yes, it's your normal lending library, but it's also your reference library, and it's your local studies library, and you can access archives there. It's all—it's a a sort of one-stop shop for information or whatever you want that to be.
1: I think that there's benefits and there's also cons for physical books. The cons for me are storing them. Yes. Because they take up, especially if it's a, a hefty book, it takes up a fair bit of space. What I like about the library, of course, is that, you can send it back when you're done with it. Plus it's free. Yes. That's what I really like. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's free. What's your opinion on Kindles and stuff like that? Because for me, I've got one here, right? And it's good and it's, it's handy. It's lightweight. You can store thousands of books on there. It's got a percentage bar. So you know how far you are into a book. However, it's quite comforting with a physical book to literally know how much progress you've made, I think. What's your opinion on e-readers and stuff?
0: I don't have a Kindle, but I have the Kindle app on my iPad. I think at the last count I had 2,000 books on it. For me, it's easier to read in bed because I now have arthritis in my hands and actually holding a big physical book is sometimes literally a pain. They have their place, the same as physical books have their place. We used to live in Hornsea on the East Coast, and I had... Um, one basement room that was completely shelved out and was my library, and I had to get rid of two thirds of that when we moved, and that was like giving my children away. <laughs> <laughs> it was seriously dreadful. I've still got I mean, all all over the house we're in now. I've there are books bookshelves and they're stuffed, and sometimes they're double stacked because I don't like giving my books away. And but there is something extremely comforting about curling up with a cup of tea and
1: a physical book. Do you ever reread books? Because the problem I had was when I had loads of books on the shelf and you've read a book, I don't tend to reread them. So I'll just look at the shelf and I'll go, oh, that's a good book that. But it's not like a film where I can just whack it on and an hour and a half later it's done. For me, I'm quite a slow reader, so it could take me two, three weeks to read a book. If I only get an hour a night, let's say, it could take a couple of weeks to read a book for me. Do you often reread books or is it a nostalgia thing? Why do you keep them so?
0: I can answer that in three words. All the time. Yeah. All the time.
1: What book have you reread the most?
0: Crime stories probably of um, Niall Marsh and Agatha Christie and some of the historical novels of Elizabeth Chadwick Stuff like that. Oh, there's one of my absolute favorites that I reread about every two years, and is that it's probably the best non-fiction book I've ever read. I started reading when I wrote Distant Shadows, which was a crime stroke romantic thriller set, set in 1953 but with its feet in World War II SOE. And it's a book called Between Silk and Cyanide, and it's by Leo Marks, who was the son. Of the man who owned Marx and Co. Co's bookshop in Charing Cross Road. So you know that you know the film Eighty Four, Charing Cross Road. Mm-hmm. That was the Marx who owned right. the bookshop, and okay. it's his son Leo Marx who wrote it. Leo Marx worked for SOE, and he was very against the agents learning poems by rote because once they were captured and the Germans only had to get the first line out of out of them under torture. They knew the codes, they knew how to code what they were sending back to England. So Leo Marx started writing their poems for them, for the girls, and I think it was for Violet Szabo that he wrote, the one that begins, the life that I have is all that I have and the life that I have is yours and he, he he used to he used to write things like that so i read that is i think that's just an amazing book so i reread that quite regularly but i will just think oh i haven't read you for about a year so it comes back off the shelf and it gets read again and sometimes if it falls apart i just buy another one <laughs> until that <laughs> falls apart as well yes they're like comfort blankets
1: yeah do you prefer hard or paperbacks
0: now it, be, it very much depends on the size of the font, which is where e-readers are so useful because if the font's too mm. little, you just adjust it. I've got um, a biography of George Sixth, and I can't read it because the, the print is too small. It's, yeah, I
1: get that. I'm reading a book at the moment mm. and it's only, it's a short book. It's 230 or 40 pages. But it's a strange size of a book. It's, it's it's taller than a normal standard book. And the font is quite small. So it feels like reading one page is almost like reading two. Yes. Very, and it's weird to hold as well. It's very
0: strange. It'll be very uncomfortable because your hands aren't used to, to that dimension, are they?
1: Yeah, it's it's... A weird old size. I think it's been self-published, so I don't know if that's why. There's a couple of typos in there and stuff which you notice.
0: You but... will find typos in every single book. I mean, allegedly, the best-selling author on the planet is Nora Roberts. She writes futuristic detective stories as J.D. Rob. I always find at least type, two typos in her, in her book. Bizarre
1: that, isn't it, considering how many edits that you just yeah. think that it must just be. Yes,
0: somebody's had a blind spot.
1: Yeah, it's strange. What do you think about audiobooks then? Because I find those bizarre. I find them hard (laughs) to listen to. So many people say, I haven't got time to sit and read, so I'll listen to a book, which I completely understand. But I feel like that's all right for nonfiction. You know, like someone's biography. Like people listen to podcasts when they work, or they'll listen to whatever, a video while they're working. But if it's a fictional story, I'd have to sit there and listen properly to understand what was going on what do you think about audiobooks
0: i have i think on the audible app something like just over a thousand i think my husband has tinnitus from not wearing earplugs when he rode his motorcycle when he was younger and so he he cannot wake up to silence during the night so we play an audiobook during the night but Quite frequently you wake up and think, oh, we're here, I quite enjoy this bit. Ah. And then you're, (laughs) for example, last night we were listening to um, Giles Milton's um, The Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare, which I also heartily recommend. It's a fantastic read. And the, there are funny bits in it as well. And, and we we were sitting there, you know, sort of laughing at bits of it. And then suddenly um, my husband said, do you fancy a cup of tea? So we get up, we will get up at 12 o'clock and we'll have a cup of tea. But we're both retired, so it doesn't matter. Um, okay. I, listen, I listen to audiobooks when I'm doing my cross-stitch. I can use them to learn, especially if I'm doing my cross-stitch and I think, oh, hang on, I'm going to find that bit useful. I can just stop it and find out where in the book it is and then i can make my notes and i'll go back to my cross stitch and keep going with the book so i also use it, use them for my research i like audiobooks very much
1: the story will continue after these quick messages and now back to the story what do you think about the audible app though because for me it's a bit of a con because you pay your monthly subscription and you get one credit per month right yes and if you want to buy more books, you just buy the books at retail price.
0: What I do is I buy three more credits. Usually they're six pounds each. Your credit with Audible is seven ninety nine. Yeah, they're six pounds each. So for eighteen quid, you get three, and that just buys you three more books. So you get three books for eighteen quid.
1: So you can actually buy
0: individual credits then for six yeah, quid you, you, rather you, than. You, okay. Yeah, you you buy them. You you buy three. You buy three extra credits. So and then they right. will sit. They will sit there. Okay. The, only, the only argument I have with Audible, and they've usually given in when I've contacted them, is that you can listen to an example of the book before you buy it, but one particular example was the sample that I listened to was a crime story and it was told in the past tense, and I thought, oh, yeah, this, this looks fine. I'll have this. I bought it, and that was just the prologue. The actual book was all in the present tense and I can't cope with that because if I am going down the stairs and I am going to the door, I can't actually tell whatever's happening. The present tense, the stories in the present tense, just they have a disconnect in my brain. So I sometimes have an argument with Audible because they won't always allow you to give the book back. So then I get in touch and say, please reconsider this decision because of X, Y and Z and most most times they will but i i think if you want to give a book back you should be able to do that you can do it with your kindle books on amazon you can give them back if you don't want if you don't like it you can return the book and i know that that has caused a lot of problems for some writers because people are downloading the kindle book reading it and then giving it back so the writers not getting the the royalties for it audible seem to have a sort of a, a bit of a different policy for that
1: that's interesting because I would have thought if you download a Kindle book and you read the whole book, you shouldn't be able to return it because it's. you should only be able to return it if there's an issue with the... the...
0: With the download or the formatting yeah. or whatever. Yes, I absolutely agree with you. I absolutely agree with you.
1: I think if you read more than maybe 25%, after a quarter of the book, you should know whether it's for you or not, right?
0: Well, af- after after the second chapter, you should know if it's for you or
1: not. Yeah, of course, yeah. And if
0: uh, let's face it, when you go into a bookshop, if you take a book off, off the shelf and you read the first page, normally you say, yeah, that'll do. After the first page, you know. What do you think about reading in libraries? Because I see people, especially in, you know, like the
1: big waterstones, some of them are like four stories as a coffee shop, and you will just see people sat down reading the book. Mm. Is there like an, an unwritten rule where you Mm, you've been reading that for about an hour mr whoever uh, are you going to buy that book or
0: i have no idea what their policies are it's not something that i would do because i would think that was fairly rude i think that as well but i'm quite happy for people to sit in libraries and read because sometimes yeah. that's that's the only peace and quiet they get
1: of course it's warm as well you know absolutely yes so at what point then because You've done this non-fiction book, of course, but I've been looking before that. You've done some fictional books. You've got this series here about Luke Ballard or Ballard, yes, Ballard, you want to say it. Ballard. Ballard, sorry, Ballard. You're right. <laughs> this is a, a a fictional Tudor set series of books where Anne Boleyn wasn't killed. Am I saying that?
0: Yeah, I, think? I call it Tudor history in an alternate timeline. Yeah, and basically the idea rooted itself. And about 2007, when I kept hearing the phrase in my head, Henry's black eyed boy.
1: Right.
0: And it took me a while to work out that any son that Anne Boleyn had would probably have had very dark eyes. This is then where we're all to start playing the what if game. So, what if Anne had actually delivered the boy child that she is thought to have lost in 1534? and brought him to term and delivered him. And he is now Henry IX. That was the original start of it. But I wanted, because I've got a bit of a, an interest in the paranormal, I wanted I wanted there to be a sort of a magical element, but it had to be very, very, very controlled. And I ended up with an apothecary in Hampton, the Green of Hampton Court Palace. And he was an elemancer who performs magic just using the elements. So it's very controlled. He doesn't just wave his hand and things happen.
1: It's <laughs> a wizard.
0: well, it could be a wizard or a, or a necromancer or whatever. yeah, and it originally started with a conspiracy within the palace to foment trouble for the for the new young Henry the And in the interests of the balance of the universe, the elemancers who work for the good of all in the light of God had to have enemies. And the enemies were sunderers, and sunderers just wanted to foment trouble and strife and make money out of it and get power and all the rest of it. And because all my stories have dogs in them, my Elemancers had dogs called Grey Springs, which had the sight abilities of a Greyhound and the scent abilities of a Springer Spaniel, except in Tudor times they were called springing Spandle, Spaniels. So they have they have gray springs. So, of course, the Sundras had to have dogs as well. And they're nasty little dogs called Umbruns. That's what started it. And I wrote the book and I sent it to an agent in Florida who loved it and landed me a three book contract. But it was for an American audience. And although there are a lot of Americans who know a lot about British history, there are more who don't. So it became more of a tell book. It was an adventure story about how Luke, my apothecary, sort of defeats the sunderer and rescues the king, blah, 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 blah. And that turned into three books for them. They were marketed under the collective title of the Tudor Enigma. By the time I'd finished number three, I have to say, it wasn't the happiest time of my life doing those three books. And I'm not going to say any more about that. So I I declined to write anymore, but I couldn't write about the people in the books for another seven years. So I went on to write other things. And then I decided when I got my rights back that I needed to start again because I needed to make them better books. So I started by writing a completely new first book, which I think I published back end of last year called Dangers of Destiny, and that takes place in the last months of Henry VIII's life, when he is lying sick under an evil spell in Hampton Court Palace, and it's the usual adventures. But Anne Boleyn is still alive, and um, she is also an Elemancer, except that women aren't allowed to be overt Elemancers. It's just sort of like an adventure series set in history, with as much Tudor history remaining authentic as i can possibly make it and a bit of paranormal thrown in it's a bit like a stew really you know (laughs) add another carrot yes
1: (laughs) a smorgasbord (laughs) that's the the one
0: yes absolutely (laughs) yeah that's a good description of it yes What's this
1: seven-year thing then for the rights? Is that something you agree in the contract? Is seven years the, the standard for this kind of stuff?
0: Yes. and by I mean, at that point in, in when I signed it, you're just so delighted that a proper mainstream publishing house actually wants to publish your books. You know, you'd agree to, to stand on your head for three hours a day if they wanted, you know, as long as they publish your books. Because of the seven years, it actually gave me time not just – to write other things, but also to hone my craft because when we moved to Hornsey, I really was a complete novice. I knew how to write good English and all the rest of it. But until I joined the local writing group called Hornsey Writers, all of whom are published writers, and they really licked me into shape and they licked my prose into shape as well. That's then again when I started to fly after with with, with their input.
1: How important is it for aspiring writers to ingratiate themselves with other writers, especially ones that are successful, rather than just trying to do it all on your own?
0: I think it's important in that you get different opinions of the way forward. Published writers will say, you won't be able to do it like that because they will turn around and they won't like that. So try doing it like this. While you're doing all that, you still have to find your authorial voice. It's one of my favourite sayings about writing. I've got two. And one is the question that everybody asks me is, what is the one genre that makes most money? To which my answer is a ransom note. The other one is, I can't remember who said it, but it comes down to writing is a lot like sex. At first, you do it because you like it, and then you do it for friends. But in the end, if you're any good, you end up doing it for money. <laughs> but and, and then ending up doing it for money means you found your authorial voice. I mean, most people who actually know me as me and read my book say, I can just hear you reading this because the, nobody else could write this. Only you could write this. And even in the nonfiction book, I've had that said.
1: What do you think about self-publishing? Because it's pretty difficult to get a published these days a friend of mine's in the process thankfully and there were times when he was approached by vanity publishers
0: oh yes no the guys that
1: make you pay to, yes. to do all that kind of stuff luckily managed to not just me but all his friends and family talked him out of signing with them thankfully now he's got a proper publisher but what about people that want to self-publish that want to take that control over their Material, complete control over everything, but there must be limitations to that, right?
0: There are. After the Tudor Enigma thing, I self-published everything that I wrote until I got the commission for the um, non-fiction Tudor book that's just come out. Mm-hmm. There are pros and there are cons. There are about seventy million books published a year, and a lot of them are indie publishers. There is a stigma still attached to independent publishers but there are a lot of books published independently that are a lot better than those published by a publisher and i think that the publishers are now coming round to the view that they have to change their attitude towards things nowadays you are expected if you are published by a publisher to do virtually all your own Promo. I know. I certainly found that with Children Enigma. The publisher helped for about a week after the publication, and then you're on your own. You're then responsible for thinking up the book, doing all the the, the research for it, writing it, and editing it. And then you publish it. Now, if this was a hundred years ago, let's let's go back to Agatha Christie. If this was a hundred years ago, she would just send it off to the publisher, sort the edits out, send it back to the publisher. And her publisher would do all her promo. But as writers now, we have to wear two hats, which is very difficult because by definition, we, we sit by ourselves in a little office with our golden retriever and we write we write our books. And, you know, it's um, Agatha Christie used to say that she used to sort of sneak off and come back after she'd written a few thousand words, like a dog who'd buried its bone in the lawn and still had mud on its nose as it came back in. It's very difficult if you are that sort of character, like she was, and really like most writers are, to then put another hat on and say, right, I am the most wonderful writer in in existence. Read my book, you know, blah, 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 blah. I can't make people read my book. I can put stuff out there and say, if you want it, it's here. This is what it's about. And um, you'll find it here, blah, blah, blah. I can't make people read my book. And I just find it very annoying on some media platforms like Facebook when authors shove their books down your throat day after day. And if there is one thing that's guaranteed to make me not buy it, that's it. So I, I tend to do very sporadic promo, which is probably why <laughs> I am still a kept woman. But I, I'm quite happy to be like that because I am not a marketeer. I'm a writer. I don't do marketing. I don't enjoy it. I don't like blowing my own trumpet. I will blow other people's. I don't like blowing my trumpet at all. It's just completely alien for me. And now that that Indies have to do that, but all writers now have to do that, whether they're published by a publisher or not. The one thing, well, several things you get, you get a good editing team usually with your publisher. And I will say this for pen and sword. It's a great editing team. And they're cover team, the team who who designed their covers, are superb. The cover of the Crime and Punishment in Tudor England is just incredible. And if you look at all the Pen and Sword covers, they are fantastic.
1: So the Crime and Punishment in Tudor England came about, ironically, on the back of the Tudor Enigma book. So someone read them, was a fan of it, reached out, and then next thing, you're writing a non-fiction book.
0: Yes, yeah, so I, just, I just got this message through messenger saying we wanted if you'd like to write this book and blah 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 I just looked at it and thought somebody's having a joke (laughs) (laughs) and then I actually looked up the lady who had contacted me and um, it wasn't a joke at all she had read Tudor Enigma and enjoyed it and I think that the fact that I kept as closely as possible to the Tudor history had Indicated to her that I do know a fair bit about it, and so I said to my husband, "What do I do?" And he said, "I'll go for it." So I went for it, and it was—it's only when you do something like that that you learn how little you know about Tudor history. Yeah, it was sometimes extremely gory to write because I needed to say about how things had been before Henry the Seventh landed and what he did for law and order afterwards. For example, one of the things that he brought in was that the benefit of clergy which was if somebody was accused of murder any man could claim benefit of clergy so long as he could quote i think it's the third verse of one of the psalms in latin so of course all the all these um, criminals went round and learned it by rote you know like we used to learn nursery rhymes by rote mm-hmm. and they could quote it and if you could if you could quote the verse you didn't hang even if you were guilty of murder henry the 7th brought in a law that you could use the benefit of clergy once and then you would have an m branded on your left thumb and if you murdered somebody again and got caught and was found guilty you'd hang and i thought what a very very sensible thing women of course couldn't claim benefit of clergy they of did a thing not. called They did a thing called pleading their belly, which meant they were pregnant. So they would be, if they were found guilty, they would be stuck in jail until the child was born. And there is one woman who who I quote in the book who was found guilty of infanticide in about 1560, I think, something like that, and pleaded her belly. And so they stuck her in jail to wait until the child was born. And then they came back to the next year and she was still pregnant. <laughs> that was in 1561. And then in 1563, she was still in jail and she was still pregnant. <laughs> right. And eventually in 1565, they pardoned her and let her go. Oh Jesus.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what you're hoping the reader takes from this book, then? What's the one message you want to portray? What you're hoping they take from it?
0: It's really I wrote it as a book for every man. I'm not a historian. I'm just somebody who is fascinated by history. And with my librarianship training, I'm usually able to find out most of what I want to find out. But it's it's more of a dipping book. It's not a book that you start at the beginning and read all the way through. The first half is sort of how things were and then the state of policing and how it changed and then what the punishments were And the bit that everybody sort of does a quick intake of breath at, which is the effect of each punishment on the human body. So that was a bit where I needed a couple of glasses of wine after it. What happens to your body after you are beheaded or hanged, drawn and quartered or just hanged or whatever? And then the second half is case studies from alchemists to zealots. And covers murder, infanticide, poaching, sumptuary laws. Some of the sumptuary laws are quite amusing. And just all the crimes for which people would be punished.
1: What I'll do is I will link the book in this episode's description, April. Just a reminder. Crime and Punishment in Tudor, England, From Alchemists to Zealots, published by Pen and Sword History, released on September 20th. A link in there if anyone listening wants to give it a read give it a buy let us know what you think of it let april know and uh hopefully you learn something that's what we like with books isn't it we try and learn something that's why we read that's why i read (laughs) well thanks for your time april any final words before we close out
0: no just happy reading and i do hope that anybody who does buy the book enjoys it and if you do please give me the oxygen of a review thank you very much
1: right we'll end it there thanks for your time april thanks everyone for listening the link for the book is in the description go give it a read